0: Well, this morning we're looking again at the gates of Jerusalem in the time of Nehemiah. You know, the walls were torn down and, you know, the gates were broken and the doors were taken off because the, you know, sin had come in Israel and that had caused the enemy to come and to destroy the, the holy city. And but yet there was a time of building up and, you know, we've been looking, we looked at one gate. And just kind of consider how these gates are representing something that God wants to build up in our lives and also in his church. And you know, we looked at the, the sheep gate last week, representing Christ as the good shepherd and how we, as we as his sheep learning to hear his voice and following him to good pastures and so forth. But in doing so, it says he manifests himself to us. Praise God for that, that he reveals himself to his sheep. And that's something we so need in his day, this day, for God to manifest himself to us. Right? We know that his plan in the last days is to reveal his glory in all the earth. But we also know that he's looking for those who will be a part of that manifestation of his glory in the earth. The laborers in his vineyard, so to speak, that will build his kingdom is what God is looking for. Now, There's a verse in Ezekiel 22 and verse 30. It says this, it kind of shows the heart of God. It says, I sought for a man among them, meaning Israel, God's people, that should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me in the land that I just should not destroy it, but I found none. All right, God didn't want Israel to be destroyed or the walls to be torn down. God was looking for someone to build it, and to stand in the gap for the people of God, but he couldn't find anyone. But in these last days, there, God needs his people. He needs those who will build up the gates, close up the openings in the walls so that the enemy no longer has free access to the city. You know, speaking of the lives of his people, of our hearts, you know, when the enemy no longer has access, he no longer has power. And so God is looking for a few good builders in this day and hour. And so I want to look at another gate with you this morning. Uh, We mentioned the sheep gate last week, and now we're going to the fish gate. And we have a, a picture we can show up here and so that's kind of a, a rough diagram so to speak of of the different gates and kind of the shape at least the thought there's different ideas about what the shape of the city was like what walls were in place or not um, this is a prominent one and so these are kind of some gates where they think they were and so the the sheep gate is on the north side and then a little bit to the left or to the uh, west of that uh, would have been the fish gate. And it's thought, supposedly, there was a fish market near this gate. At least that's the theory uh, for why it was called the fish gate. And, and so the fishermen would bring their catches from both the Mediterranean and the, and the Sea of Galilee, and they would sell it in Jerusalem there. And so people got their fish, and they thought, hey, let's call it the fish gate. At least that's, that's our theory anyway. It's, it's not a bad theory. But, you know, it, it reminds us of one of our callings as believers, right? We're called to be fishers of men. And we know that from what Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 4.18. Jesus walking by one of the sources of those fish, right? The Sea of Galilee and he saw the two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew's brother, casting a net into the sea. They were, they were after some fish. They were looking for dinner and for something to sell, maybe at the fish gate is where they went. And, and so Jesus says unto them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And that struck a chord in their heart. And it says they dropped their nets and they followed him. So they realized this is where it's at. You know, he's the master and he's calling us to be with him. And, you know, they followed him in that way. And so, you know, after we've met the Lord at the, the sheep gate, we've come to know him as our shepherd. Then we pr- proceed to the fish gate where we tell others about Christ. Um, you know, there's it's something interesting, though, about that order. You can't go to the sheep gate first. It doesn't really work that way you got to go to or no let me re- let me rephrase that you can't go to the fish gate first you got to go to the sheep gate first right and there's a an important thing like many people have tried to to qualify through doing good things right through good works but there's no substitute for knowing the good shepherd for knowing him as our savior and shepherd and having a relationship with the good shepherd. You know, one of the the most prominent stories that I can think of with this is, you know, kind of reminds us of Charles Wesley, right? He was a prominent evangelist and, and leader in the church. And as a young man, he was very religious and pious and he would preach Christ. He even traveled as a missionary from England to America to preach Christ. There was only one problem. He didn't know Christ. He, he himself testified. I I wasn't saved. I didn't know Christ. I just knew what to preach from the Bible to lead other people to Christ. But he didn't know him himself. And and along the way sailing, he saw this group of Moravian Christians who were, they I mean they were basically in a revival. They they were the group that had a hundred year prayer meeting, you know, and and just they they knew God. They knew what it was like to trust God. And and he saw them, and he was impacted by their life. And they were in the midst of storms on the way over and on, you know, on the boat. And everyone was scared for their life, except those Moravians. They weren't scared at all. They were just praising God. And he, I think someone even asked them, it's like, are, are you scared to die? I'm like, No, we go to die. We go to heaven. They were rejoicing at that thought. And he saw them. He's like, oh, man, there's something about them that's different. They have something. You know, and he he tried to preach, and he basically gave up and went back home. Uh, John Wesley, he kind of felt like it was fruitless, that there was something lacking. So he went back home to England and eventually attended a Moravian church where he met Christ and was saved. Then he became a fisher of men because he had met the one who mattered. He went to the sheep gate, finally, and met Christ. But in one sense, you know, we go to the sheep gate, but then there's the fish gate. Then we share Christ, right? We're called to be a light and a witness uh, of faith in Christ, to share that with others. And now there's many things we can do to facilitate that. We can read, we can study and pray and, and so forth. And, you know, it's good. I like reading books on evangelism once in a while. It kind of gets the juices going to to share and to you know, different strategies for how to do that and so forth. But, you know, I've found that one thing helps above everything else. and That's just doing it, practicing, telling people about Jesus, um, you know, stepping out in faith. Although sometimes I don't feel like I'm very good at it, but yet doing it is what makes us better fishermen. Right. I mean, you can think about it. Someone could like watch videos and and. Read books and do all that, but if we've never cast a line in the water, we can't really call ourselves a fisherman or a fisherwoman. That takes experience. It takes knowing how the fish strike and what time of day is the best. And we just got to do it. Someone once said this, I thought was pretty, pretty true. Someone once said, God can use any words that we say to witness to people, no matter how clumsy or you know, simple, God can use those words. The only thing you can't use is our silence. Isn't that so true? God can use it. Just, you know, even if we just say, Jesus, save me. He can save you. God can use those words. In fact, I was thinking of a story and I was actually talking with Sarah. We couldn't f- remember the exact details or what book, where it was in the book, but I didn't have a chance to look it up. But it's a story about Corey Tenboom. She was the Dutch lady who survived concentration camp in World War II, but really she was an evangelist and traveled the whole world. And one meeting, a lady came up to her. Um, you know, she she thought she was good and so forth. And um, you know, didn't she she kind of thought many roads lead to, to heaven and and that kind of thing. But Corey just shared one parting thought, basically a simple message. And I can't, I'm probably getting this totally wrong, but that's not the point. She just basically shared this soup, really simple phrase. It was based on a scripture, but let's just say she said something like, Jesus is the only way to heaven. That, that wasn't the exact phrase, but I'm going to have to look that up later. But she just shared this very simple phrase. And then this lady left. And a year later, this lady, she met this lady again in another another service. And this time the lady said, I'm saved. I met Jesus. And so she asked her, well, what happened? And and this lady said, that phrase you told me, I could not get it out of my head. That simple phrase, Jesus, is the only way to heaven. She, that just, it was as if it just pounded and resonated in her heart. No matter what she did, she couldn't get away from that. And finally, she yielded to God and she met the Savior. And, you know, it doesn't matter if we don't have great or inspiring words, you know, sometimes you're sharing Christ, like I totally need to say something more articulate, but I, you know, well, Jesus saves, but you know, Jesus can use those words to, to draw someone's heart, to impact them. It's just hard, a lot harder for him to use our silence, our lack of it. And so, You know, it's just speaking and planting those seeds of faith. Now, of course, one of the most effective ways to share Christ is simply by sharing our testimony, what Christ has done in our life through us, you know, how he's changed us and what he's done in us. We see this in Revelation 12 and verse 10, where John is seeing that vision of heaven. And he he says, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now comes salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. The accuser of the brethren is cast down, which accused them, uh, which accused them before our God day and night. I'm looking forward to that day when the accuser can't accuse anymore; he's cast down. Well, how did how did they how did the saints overcome by the blood of the Lamb? All right, We need the blood applied continually and, and there's great power in the blood. But it also says, and by the word of their testimony, the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives unto death, right? Three really important things. But when we're considering the power of something, the word of their testimony, All right? Now, I think that you can kind of have a double thing that, you know, that's the testimony of Christ and his power working in us but it, yet that has to become our testimony. And we have a testimony of Christ working through us. That becomes something so powerful. It becomes something we can fight with. You know, and so our testimony can be powerful if we're following God and obeying him and so forth because you know people can argue doctrine and religious theory and have an answer for everything that we say about the Bible and and so forth, but they can't speak against what Christ has done in us, all right? They can't argue that when we say, Jesus did this in me. There's nothing they can say. You know, Wesley was a very intelligent man. He graduated from Oxford. Um, he knew Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, right? And so he knew it all. If you tried to argue theology with you. I don't know if you get that far, but when he saw those Moravians who were not necessarily educated people, they were kind of peasants from Germany who loved the Lord and they gave themselves to to follow God and be missionaries and they were going to the to America. And he saw them and he he saw in their life, in their testimony something he didn't have. And that was more powerful than any any necessarily theological argument they could have had with him. And that is ultimately what we want people to understand, how knowing Christ personally can change us for eternity. And that's all we have to share with people or the essence. And so we need to make that our practice, something that's continual. In fact, we actually see, this is one of the few gates we see a bit of a warning uh, associated with this in Nehemiah 3 and verse 5 it says, and next unto them, the teco, I don't know if I'm saying that right, techoites, <laughs> repaired, but the nobles put not their necks to the work of the Lord. That's associated with the fish gate. The nobles did not put the work in. right? And this is on the gate where this is brought out. And I think God's kind of using this to illustrate a purpose. He's looking for laborers. He's seeking those who will labor, who will be a testimony and a light and a witness, not a light with the bushel put on it, but a light like a city set on a hill that many can see like paul said i'm not afraid of the gospel of christ i'm not or I'm not ashamed of the gospel of christ it wasn't that he was wasn't ashamed to read it he wasn't ashamed to testify and to tell people about that Luke ten and verse two I've, Alluded to this verse, he said, uh, therefore, Jesus said unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. That's the whole key for the day we're living in. You know, we we it's not bad to pray for revival. Lord, we need revival. But here the Lord is saying, But pray for laborers to work in that revival. And so, you know, we can pray with this, Lord, help me to be one of your laborers, that we can, you know, practice in that, the fish gate. You know, we can pray, Lord, send me people to share with. Lord, give me opportunities to plant seeds of faith. You know, sometimes in our little circle and, you know, routine, it, sometimes we don't even meet many new people to share the faith with, you know, right. I mean, my wife and I, we work in our office, we go to the grocery store, go home. I might wave to the male lady once in a while, you know, but, but we can still pray, Lord, bring people in my way. I can share with, and I can plant seeds. And, you know, that's actually another thought is, is sometimes we're like, well, they didn't respond to that. I don't know if that did anything. You know, we feel like a failure because, well, no one was converted. I didn't lead anyone in the sinner's prayer. That's actually kind of a fallacy because in a sense, the, all the scripture says is that we are to share. We are to plant the seeds of faith and it is God who does the work of transformation. And so we're in obedience as long as we're just planting se- little seeds. You know, that's what God's calling for. One last thought we have in, you know, in this the thought of the fish gate. We mentioned that the walls were to be built in troublous times. And there's a relation to this thought with the fish gate. You know, Pastor Bailey, in one of his books, he was sharing a story. He was walking by a lake in London and um, he saw people fishing, but they were throwing rocks into the pond. And he thought that was kind of different. Like, why are you throwing rocks into there and stirring up the sediment? Um, And they They replied to him, he said well when it, when the water's a little murky, the fish bite better because they i guess apparently they can't see now, I don't know about the this theory of throwing rocks in and is going to cause the fish to bite better but but there's the the thought there is that sometimes when the waters are troubled and stirred up, they're not crystal clear, they can't quite see what they're biting, and they you know they bite better or or the you know easier for them to get on the line I'm not." that much of a fisherman to confirm that but but it it still it illustrates a truth that in times of trouble in the nations when there's unrest or economic difficulties sometimes people's hearts are a little more open to the lord because they realize i need him when everything's great yeah well i'll i'll talk to you later i'm gonna have a good time now but when there's trouble hearts are open to turn to god and so um, you know, God, we realize is moving in this day, in this hour, and you know, sometimes I realize for for some it could be a little nerve wracking to to share your faith, you know, out there because you don't know how people are going to respond, right? And how how are what's the reaction going to be like? I actually just read a poll, and I'm I'm pretty sure it was around ninety percent, um, but but basically they were asking. Uh, about people talking about faith, religious things, and it, and the res- this recent poll said that ninety percent of people said they were reluctant to talk about faith because they were afraid of how people would react, just of because of what's going on out there. They think, well, this might not be pro- politically correct. But there's also a truth that in troublous times, people's hearts can be opened, open to for some stability for an answer for hope you know when we share about the good shepherd and the prince of peace it can have a great effect upon them and so we we need to build up the fish gate in this day and this hour as the holy spirit leads us i want to just cover one more gate here the next gate if we can go back to the, or get to that picture if we could the next gate in the series is called the old gate. Um, don't ask me why they called this the old gate. Maybe it's the oldest gate there. I don't know if that was, uh, you know, it just got the the name, the old gate. We're not quite sure. But, you know, it carries that thought for us of a necessity as believers to stay upon the foundation of the old. You know, not to leave the old or the original pathway and purpose God has for us. And you know, kind of makes us think of what the Lord spoke through the prophet Jeremiah, um, for Israel, who at that point with Jeremiah they had forsaken the ways of God and the fountain of living waters. And the Lord spoke through Jeremiah in, in Jeremiah six and verse sixteen. Lord, thus says the thus says the Lord, stand in the old stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and you will find rest for your souls. Fortunately, Israel said, we will not walk in that way. You know, and so there's a necessity in the Christian life, even in, in general, to remind ourselves what is essential in life. What are the foundational things that I need to make sure I'm always attached to, that we're building upon the solid ground of truth You know uh we can refer to hebrews six verses one and two talks about the foundational things of christ right the doctrines and the truths of repentance and faith and baptisms of a better resurrection of eternal judgment right standing before the great white throne of judgment and so forth and you know maybe we can even add to this the foundational concepts of like the moral laws and commandments as well um some of those moral laws can by today's standard seem very antiquated right uh of righteousness and holiness and keeping yourself from the world and flesh and so forth i mean even in the church sometimes they think those are antiquated um things but you know there's every generation faces a test of and it's true for everyone here no matter what generation we were in we always look at our parents and we think, well, we know better. (laughs) You guys are old. (laughs) You guys, you guys are set in your ways. We know better. And every generation is tested in that, in that sense. And there's that danger because it can cause us to deviate from the old ways simply because they're the ways of our parents or of our forefathers. And, you know, we're new and we have new and exciting things and we're going to try new ways, but it can cause us to deviate from the old ways. We have a stark example from Rehoboam, Solomon's son. Remember the story of Rehoboam, Solomon died and the all the nation came to him and and they said, "You know, at the end of his life, Solomon was a pretty tough guy and he put all this burden on us and we want we're we're here cuz we want some change." And and Rehoboam went to the old counselors and they said, "You know, they're right. If you want them to love you, just, you know, tell them you're going to ease things up and you're there for them and and you'll take care of them and they'll be your servants forever. And then he went to his generation. And, of course, we know what they said. What? You don't need to do that. Tell them that, you know, your father was so-and-so and you thought, you thought he was tough. Wait till I get in charge. I'm going to be even tougher. And he had some different descriptions, you know, for... Uh, how he would do that. Of course what that happened is that they rejected that and in rejecting that it caused a split and a division and unrest for the rest of the history of the nation of Israel. We're seeing something like that in our day as well, right? With what's going on. I want to just kind of close out with this this thought of Josiah we saw the breaking of the kingdom with Rehoboam, but you know, there's something happened in Josiah that was a renewal and a restoration uh, because the greatest Passover in the history of the kingdom of Israel happened under Josiah. All right? God was doing a work of restoration after the wickedness of his grandfather Manasseh, the most wicked king in Israel's history. I mean, you cannot find him more wicked. I think probably even more than than Ahab and Jezebel. I mean, he just embraced everything, put an idol on every corner. And it brought such wickedness over the land and judgment. Well, his grandson Josiah was one of the most godly kings in Israel's history, in Judah's. I mean, he did a lot of work to cleanse the nation and to restore God's people. That's a picture of the last days, right? Great wickedness has come in and and even more will come into the church. But God is going to do a restoration like we've never seen. And we look forward to that. But, you know, one of the things that Josiah did was to reinstitute the Passover. It was a renewal. It was a coming back to the old ways, the foundational ways. And it says something interesting 2 Kings 23 and verse 22. Surely there was not held, Holden, good old King James, not held such a Passover from the days of the judges that judged Israel, nor all the days of the kings of Israel, nor the kings of Judah. That's saying something. Even in the days of the judges. I mean, I don't know what's before that. Moses and Joshua It was such a return and renewal that it was greater even than what was done before. We need that renewal. That's greater even than anything we've seen, perhaps since Christ. We need that renewal. And so it's a wonderful picture of the last days. We know judgment's coming, but God's going to do a work of restoration. And how did God do that in Josiah's time? by looking to the old ways in a big way to renewal, to that renewal. And so there needs to be a major emphasis on the foundation of truth and of righteousness to restore God's people to his ways in the last days. One last verse, Proverbs 4 and verse 18. There's something we, we can probably quote. But the path of the just is as a shining light that shines more and more unto the perfect day. You know, we love this thought of the pathway and the light just increasing and growing brighter and brighter. But it, it says, and what brings this, it's, it's walking upon the pathway of the just or justice, of truth, of righteousness, on the foundation of the rock of Christ's truth when we're continually on the rock of obedience of God's truth there's light then the opposite of that is if we deviate from the foundational aspects there's darkness you know we we're seeing that in the earth a big deviation from God's truth and his ways and what's right and so forth and it's getting quite dark but yet we're trusting God is going to bring a renewal but you know really in the most important you know thing we talk about the world and the church, but really the p- most important thing is our lives. And sometimes there needs to be a renewal, a realignment where we check ourselves against the, the old ways or the foundational ways. And sometimes we say, Lord, is, is there any area in my life I need to check or I need to reorient myself to reestablish myself on the old and solid pathway upon the rock? The whole emphasis on the world is to get us off that pathway. But God's emphasis is to bolt us down to that pathway so that we are that house founded upon the rock that there's no storm can remove. And I think it's obvious in our nation and in the world that we need a realignment. But more importantly, in the church as well, but it more importantly, because it starts in us, it starts in each heart, in each life. And so we can pray, Lord, cause my, my life to be aligned to you fully. And so we are called to build the wall in troublous times, to build the fish gate in wisdom. Right? We do that carefully, knowing more than ever people need to hear the truth and see a true testimony of Christ and of Jesus And we overcome by the word of our testimony and by sticking closely to the foundational pathway of God's truth and righteousness, because we're getting ready for the biggest move the world has ever seen. Not just the biggest Passover, but the biggest tabernacles, because the Feast of Tabernacles is the feast that's associated with the last days and that great harvest he's bringing in. And the Passover was seven times greater or that (laughs) tabernacles was seven times greater than Passover. Passover was celebrated for one day, tabernacles for seven days. And so God is coming to do something mighty in the earth, perhaps even in a way we've never even seen or heard or imagined before. But God wants us to be a part of it. So we need to build up our gates. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your plan and your purpose, Lord, for the world and for your church is good. And Lord, for us is good. And so, Lord, we invite you. Oh, Lord, come into our lives afresh. Lord, would you even give us strength and confidence and boldness to build up the fish gate, Lord, to to share of the mighty works that you've done in our lives and, Lord, what you can do in others. Lord, give us confidence to plant those seeds of faith in others. And Lord, would you even just meet with us and show us, Lord, how we can be even, Lord, more securely founded upon the rock in our lives. And we would be walking upon that that pathway that's sure and right, that we can have that true testimony. Oh, lead us, we pray. We just thank you. We glorify you. Lord, build up your church. Build up your gates within us. Oh, Lord, that the King of glory would come in. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.